America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. This episode commemorates the 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001. My guest is John Pontacoloni. John worked for the city of New York and he has a first-hand account of the horrific events that happened that day, including both planes hitting the World Trade Center and watching both buildings collapse. John's story is a harrowing account of 13 plus hours to get out of the city, and it's not only a story of tragedy, John also recounts the many miracles that happened on that day. I encourage you to sit with your family and listen to this episode because even though it is a hard one, there are so many good things that John has to say and it's really worth listening to together with your family. Remembering 9-11, John's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is John. John has a very important story that needs to be heard. John was at ground zero on September 11th, 2001. He generously agreed to share his story. John, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Tina. Maybe can you start off with uh, where you grew up? I was born and raised in Flushing, Queens. Uh, as was my wife. And uh, we met under unusual circumstances, which is another story entirely. (laughs) We dated and got engaged and ultimately married uh, over the course of a four-year period. You have to understand we met on my 18th birthday. So we were pretty young um, at the time. And did you raise your family in New York? Oddly enough, we were lifelong New Yorkers and my parents were moving to Florida and we heard that land in Florida was cheap. We bought a house down there. Our son was actually born in Florida and we decided we did not want to uh, raise him there for a variety of reasons. But ultimately, uh, within one month, my uh, wife had flown uh, back with my son to New York and uh, her father and I uh, packed up the furniture and we drove from Florida to New York. And we stayed in New York until uh, it was actually early in 2016 when we moved to Utah to um, be close to our son again, who had uh, moved to Utah for business. What is so marvelous about New York? Because I have never been there. New York is a tough place to live. You have to have a thick skin. You have to move very fast uh, all the time. And uh, it's a very expensive place to live. I I tell people, uh, you know, New York is a great place for tourists. I mean, Broadway, museums, I mean, the arts. uh, I mean, it's just unsurpassed. Every kind of 
food you could ever possibly hope to eat and you can eat it 24 hours a day because if in new york if you have a craving for thai food at uh, three o'clock in the morning it'll be at your door 30 minutes later you know it's it's a very service oriented town and the people are nice but nice but but tough they are um you know in an emergency i always felt like uh, new yorkers uh, would be at their best and uh, i have never been proven wrong through blackouts and um, 9-11 and everything else. In New York, you um, see people from all over the world, right? A very cosmopolitan city. I worked for the city for a number of, uh, well, pretty much for my whole life. And um, as I recall, the time I left, the uh, city was able, had translators on standby for 144 different languages. Wow. Um, it's just the kind of place it is. You're going to meet the UN and you just meet the best of the uh, uh, world. And they come here because uh, of the uh, the opportunities that we give them here. It doesn't matter if you uh, came here or were born here uh, or where you came from. If you are industrious and hardworking and kind, uh, you will be successful. What was your career? I knew right out of high school that I really, really loved bookkeeping and accounting. I got a bachelor's degree in economics, a master's degree in accounting, and uh, ultimately through a series of jobs, I ultimately started working for the city of New York in, um, I think it was, was it? I think it was, it was 1986 that I began working for the city of New York. Again, just as an accounting uh, clerk and it became accounting supervisor and payment supervisor and then ultimately deputy director and then ultimately the director of finance uh, who was responsible for overseeing the staff that paid all the bills for the city of New York. So our budget for the non-payroll services, meaning salaries and such were paid by a different department, our uh, group paid everything else was in the um, two plus trillion dollar budget range. Yeah. I mean, the electric bills that we paid for this, the city of New York at the time, not during the summer, which was much higher because of air conditioning costs, but we would average 75, 80 million dollars a month. Oh my goodness. So we had the same bills you have. Uh, just, <laughs> just much higher. With a lot more zeros <laughs> tacked on. And that, that, that's really it. And it was a good job. And uh, I was very, very, very proud that there was never any scandals or any um, fiscal issues uh, during my tenure as the, the uh, director there. What do you remember about the morning of September 11th, 2001? Uh, Where were you? How did that day start? Uh, that day began with me um, leaving my house late, uh, which is a theme which I will get to. But uh, because I had worked very late the uh, previous day, I normally I'd be catching a train at about five o'clock in the morning. For uh, yeah, I would leave my house at uh, four thirty, and it took me two and a half hours to commute to Lower Manhattan. So I commuted five hours every day. Ah, uh. yeah. <laughs> New Yorkers commute. We have long commutes. As a matter of fact, as I recall, it's, it's the, the longest in the country. 
but that's where my job was and that's how I supported my family. So I was going into work and I was catching the 706 train, which was, you know, really late for me. Um, I left my home, home in uh, Islip, which is a little town, sort of dead center. If you look at Long Island, Islip is the absolute center of uh, Long Island. And uh, it was later than normal, like I say, I was catching the 706 train to Penn Station, which is in midtown Manhattan. Uh, then I would take a short subway trip and then I had a, uh, a good walk. I uh, would walk from the Chamber Street station to my office, which was uh, a block or two away. When you exit the Chamber Street station in downtown Manhattan, you're going up this steep incline of stairs. And at the top of the stairs, framed perfectly, is the Twin Towers, or was. Uh, I remember it was a absolutely beautiful, beautiful um, fall morning. It almost felt, felt like springtime, though. It was absolutely uh, gorgeous. Literally not a cloud in the sky. I uh, uncharacteristically paused at the top of the stairs and looked at the Twin Towers and I said, you know, it's it's good to be alive. And I started my trip, which uh, entailed about a three-block walk from Chambers Street all the way up to uh, the um, One Center Street was the office that I worked at. Um, the unique thing about the One Center Street address is that it is across the street from the mayor's office, which is great because we did a lot of uh, work with, we worked with the mayor quite a bit and is at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, so a lot of people, a lot of tourists would come there. Um, we're at the foot of Chinatown and Little Italy and all those other places. So it was really a neat place to, to uh, work. When I was about halfway to my office, we heard this deafening sound and I think subconsciously I recognized that it was an airplane. I, the reason I didn't believe it is that normally when we're hearing um, airplanes, they're behind several inches of thick glass at the airport. Uh, you know, they're just idling basically at that point, uh, relatively quiet. If you can imagine a jet uh, going full throttle about maybe seven, 800 feet off the ground, so loud that all the people on the street literally dropped there to their knees because it first it sounded like it was going to crash right on top of us i looked up and i saw that it passed overhead and when i stood uh, i watched the first plane plow into the north tower of the world trade center lots of paper glass lots of steel debris burst from the three sides of the tower that I could see flames and smoke began coming out a minute later. And I just watched all these sheets of paper floating down. And I remember having the oddest thought I recalled. It looked just like the ticker tape parades. I could see the, this confetti falling into the streets below. And I wondered if this was just an accident or if this was an act of terrorism. So I immediately called my wife on the phone. My wife immediately assured me that this was most certainly not an accident. She knew that, uh, you know, the towers had been there for years. Uh, nobody accidentally flew into this thing and that someone had done it intentionally. She, uh, I told her I would check on my staff and let her know what was happening. And I rushed along with many others uh, to our respective offices. And I could already feel the adrenaline uh, pumping and uh, pushing me along. Uh, by about 8.55 a.m., I reached my office 
I began talking with my deputy director, Bob Devlin. We had worked together many, many years, and I could see the Twin Towers from my office. I was on the 17th floor of the uh, Manhattan Municipal Building, which, like I say, is at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge, which gives me an absolutely uh, unobstructed view of the Twin Towers. After spending a few minutes deciding on what we should do, my staff started screaming, I, screaming and I looked up and just in time to see that another plane was now flying directly toward the South Tower. Since it came from the opposite direction, I could not see the impact directly, but from the rupture of smoke and flames that exploded out the opposite side, it was certainly a direct hit. It was certainly clear to me at this point that this was no accident. And shortly after 9 a.m., I telephoned my wife one last time to let her know what had happened because for her, all the television sets had uh, suddenly gone blank because of the broadcast towers that were on the uh, South Tower. I told her I would let her know and I would try to contact her somehow as I made my way home. At that point, all cell phone service abruptly terminated. We immediately began organizing the evacuation of our staff. I did not uh, check in with anybody. Uh, many of the other offices were already deserted. I had 46 very frightened people um, who had to be calmed down before we could make any progress. And we Basically, what we did was we paired them up, made sure that they had a destination that was hopefully a safe distance from the World Trade Center. Unfortunately, nobody really knew what a safe distance was when everybody uh, had a way home and was out the door by by nine, now alone on the 17th floor of uh, our office. We looked out at the smoking towers and prepared to leave. My friend Bob's daughter, Kate, went to school in downtown Manhattan. Her school was actually very, very close by. We decided uh, our first thing we had to do was make sure she was all right. So the plan was we would travel together. Once we had her, he would take her back to Brooklyn and I would find some way to travel to Queens, which is the borough I lived in, and hopefully find uh, transportation home. That was going to be a futile hope. Uh, uh, the elevators had all been recalled to the lobby, so we walked down 17 flights of stairs and through the side entrance. We figured we would cut through one police plaza, which is right directly behind the Manhattan Municipal Building. That turned out to be a mistake. As we were walking toward one police plaza, the first people that were coming out of the buildings who had been caught in a lot of the smoke and debris were arriving at our building. They were asking for water to drink and to wash off their faces. You could not tell what color or all of them were covered in gray ash from head to toe. So you had absolutely no idea who they were or what color they were or, or anything. Uh, I remember washing off the face of a woman and, and just seeing um, the relief on her face just to, just to get that contamination off of her. We left that. Other people were doing that. So we started to go to, go to through one police plaza, Bob and I, and we were confronted by two federal marshals armed with a riot gun and an automatic weapon demanding identification. They had no idea who we were. They didn't know we worked in the building. And to avoid getting shot, we just knelt down very carefully. We produced our identification and the two justifiably um, nervous officers order us uh, back the way we had come. They weren't letting anyone get near one police plaza because understandably nobody Nobody knew if there was going to be more attacks. And because all communications were down, we did not know about Pennsylvania. We did not know about you know, the, the other planes. Just before 10 a.m., we looked back toward the World Trade Center and the two of us witnessed South Tower's slow collapse. At least it seemed slow. It just seemed like it was just very, very gracefully 
shrinking down into this little pile and it just disappeared from sight. When you saw that first plane go in, yeah. and did you go down on the ground as well, like everybody else? Yeah. Did you get down on your knees? And I did. You're looking around at these other people. What do you yep. see on their faces? Oh, they were terrified. They were, at first we thought, well, you know, maybe he's headed for the river. Maybe he's making an emergency landing, but at the altitude that he was at and the detail that I could see on the undercarriage of that jet, he wasn't making the river. I, I knew, I was just hoping he would not hit anything. I, you know, obviously I had no way of knowing that it was absolutely their intention to, to hit something. Were you um, nervous being on the 17th floor of your building? Not really, we were very focused. We had people that we had to take care of. Uh, they had to be paired up and they had to be, you know, we had to make sure that they had what they, at least they felt was a safe place to go. And I, I wanted them to, to contact me to let me know that they had arrived safely. And then it was more focused about getting Bob's daughter and making sure she was all right. And then I, I had to make my way home. So we walked about 45 minutes till we neared a building where uh, Bob's daughter attended grade school. In the distance, we heard the thunderous collapse of the second tower. That's a noise I will never forget. It just sounded like this long, slow roar. And then it just stopped. After we got his daughter, we shook hands and I continued on alone in a crowd of many thousands that were walking away, essentially. It was the people that were, found out later, the people that were below, uh, further downtown uh, in Manhattan, they were all actually going to the coast and a flotilla of boats from New Jersey was taking people across. I was, I was headed toward the, the uh, either the 59th Street Bridge or the Midtown Tunnel, whichever, I, you know, whichever was open or whichever I could get to first. How are you planning on getting out? Did you not know you were just- Walking. We knew that there was gonna be no subways running. Most people don't realize Manhattan sinks about 10 inches every day when all the people commute to the island of Manhattan. And literally hundreds of thousands of cars and over a million people come to Manhattan every day. The island actually sinks almost 10 inches. All right, imagine all those people simultaneously trying to evacuate the city. It was way more orderly than it should have been. But uh, like I say, once, once I left, I would have taken the Brooklyn Bridge, but all the people that were on the Brooklyn Bridge abandoned their cars and it was clogged basically with vehicles from one end to the other. And since I was not up for trying to literally climb from car to car to car, I decided to walk to Midtown. How are you feeling? Numb at this mm. point was- Unreal. Yeah, it, it seemed all, uh, it did seem very, very unreal. And I was- Apocalyptic. I, uh, I mean, uh, eventually I got angrier than, than numb. And I think it was mostly because I felt like, you know, how dare someone attack my city, my country. Uh, it was, uh, and you know, I, I feel like if you're 
sometimes when you're angry, you can't be afraid. Like mm-hmm. you just can't feel those two things at once. So I, I, I was headed toward the um, Midtown Manhattan. I found an injured woman who had been hit by debris. So I diverted and helped her along. And we walked to a local hospital. I forget which one. I saw that she got help. And then the two of us, once she had been bandaged up and discharged, the strange thing is when we went to the hospital, all these medical personnel was stationed outside with gurneys, blankets, bandages, plasma. I mean, they were ready for thousands of injured people to be coming to the hospital. And it's sad they didn't come, did they? They, they never came. They ended up staying there. And the city of New York, one of the first purchases they made was um, tens of thousands of body bags because they just felt that, that there would be this horrific loss of life. And who knows how many other planes were going to be flying or crashing that day, which is another story, which I'll get to if we have time. You have lots later. of mini stories, don't you? <laughs> oh, it's, it was interesting. I, I, I did some research uh, later on. Um, again, I, I, I was feeling too angry to think about how tired I was. And I began my long walk uptown along the way. Uh, many businesses had placed radios and televisions outside playing loudly with people huddled around the uh, televisions, just like kids around uh, the Macy's windows at Christmas. They're all, just all desperate for any kind of news. Nobody could use their cell phone. Once I cleared 14th Street, I tried to find a pay phone to call home, but the lines were impossibly long. I, I could have waited there the rest of the day and never, never gotten to the, the phone. Anyway, I helped us woman to the hospital we began walking uptown now at this point they started flying jets were flying overhead and people were just praying that they were american jets um just from a personal f- familiarity i was pretty sure they were f-16s so i wasn't terribly ner- nervous about them but they kept streaking back and forth across the sky who knows what they were looking for or hunting or or what else uh, it was the NYU Medical Center. That's what it was. 25th uh, Street and 1st Avenue. She was getting treated. I used the, um, I remember using the restroom, getting, getting water, which was in very short supply, sat for a bit. Those who were seeking to evacuate by, by car had to abandon their cars because every route out of the city was clogged. We found a city bus that was actually still, still working. We got on the bus and after driving a few feet, we, it, we literally sat there for almost an hour. And finally, we just asked the driver to discharge us. And we began walking again. To tell you the truth, walking just felt better than doing nothing. And just sitting there. Yeah. And how are the people looking as you're walking around? Are people looking like zombies? Are they talking? Nervous. Just a lot of people rushing um, away from the towers. Some holding hands um, for family members, who knows. Were they talking or was it mostly No, it was silence? eerily, eerily quiet. And what um, are you hearing through the city then? What noises are you hearing? Sirens? What? You know, the first noise I remember hearing when we were, um, got out of the hospital, there was this tiny police officer, a, a young police woman. And this had to be the crappiest day of her life. She was standing up on one of these giant planters that New York uses to basically keep cars from going where they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. 
So she's standing up on this, telling people to keep calm. And I had had an extra bottle of water. And I told her, I said, lady, I wouldn't take your job for all the tea in China. Gave her the bottle of water, which she seemed to really appreciate because her uniform blouse was soaking wet. I mean, she's just standing there in the sunlight trying to maintain order. I, I have such tremendous respect for the police and, and all the uniform services that responded that day. And, you know, they were the, you could always tell that there was, uh, that they were police officers because they were running in the opposite direction of all the other people that were evacuating. And um, it's really scary or kind of, what I don't want to say eerie to think how many of them didn't come back. A lot of them lost their life. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. We eventually made it across the 59th Street Bridge. Now, right across the 59th Street Bridge is the LaGuardia Community College. I got an associate's degree in accounting there. And there's some payphones right at the end of the bridge. And of course, there was 100 people online all looking to try and call on the landline because that's the only way people can call. Now, as a student there, I remember that there was a diner two blocks behind that college. And outside that diner, there was, I remember, an old payphone. And I said, what are the odds of that payphone still being there and still working? Sure enough, we had one quarter between the two of us. She called her husband and asked, is there any way you can meet us at such and such a place? And he jumped right in the car and he came right over. We tried to get on the highway to get out of, we were just at the tip of, we had left Manhattan just at uh, Queens and we needed to head east. And uh, the police weren't letting anybody onto the highway. They were, they were reserving those roads for ambulances, fire mm. trucks and such. And I showed my city ID to the officer and I said, look, these people are just, you know, we just escaped ground zero. I said, these people are trying to get me home. I said, it's one car. Could you let us through? And he did. He allowed us to uh, pass. To make a long story short, they were uh, kind enough to give me a ride to Flushing, Queens. Uh, I surprised, I knew Lillian had an aunt and uncle, uh, aunt and uncle Mahoney uh, were in Queens. I was covered in dirt and ash. And uh, after washing up a bit and eating something, I rested for a bit and they insisted on driving me out to Long Island where my wife was. Uh, and we were finally reunited. This was at 10 o'clock at night. It had taken me, um, more than half a day, uh, over 13 hours uh, since we had spoken. And she confessed she wasn't sure if she would ever see me alive again. Uh, I was dirty. I'm sure I smelled bad, but she didn't mind. We were both very tired now, but I was, again, just very, very grateful. Please understand uh, today, I, I consider myself a very, very fortunate man, except for the terrible emotional shocks and some asthma problems. Uh, and some numb feelings. I mean, I was numb for several days and walking across half the city, I had essentially gotten out of the disaster uh, without a, a scratch or so I thought. Um, in 2016, they actually had to remove my left lung and it was because of all the contamination that I had inhaled from 9-11, but I, I still consider myself very blessed. Uh, the the doctor, the surgeon who operated on me asked me, he said, and he took pictures 
of this because of course, as, as a thoracic surgeon, he had never seen anything like this before. He said, how did you manage to breathe out of one lung? I said, no one can breathe out of one lung, it's impossible. You breathe to breathe out of both lungs. He said, no, you don't understand. So he shows me a picture of my right lung. It's pink, it's perfect, absolutely untouched. My left lung reminded me of a piece of burnt bacon. I mean, it was literally black. I mean, I can only say that it's my belief I was shielded by a higher power. My work wasn't done yet or, or, or whatever. And I, I don't want to become too preachy, but I, I definitely feel like that was a miracle for me and that I am still alive today because that right lung for in however it happened uh, remained absolutely uncontaminated from uh, all the garbage I had breathed in. Well, I am sure with just the uh, injuries that you sustained, you have a great deal of empathy for those who worked at Ground Zero afterwards. Yeah, I had to join the uh, World Trade Center um, health organization. I still get emails from them and update them on my health status and such. And yeah, I, I really feel that the, the city was very smart. I mean, there were many people who didn't join the registry for many years after 9-11 because they had no idea of the long-reaching consequences, uh, the poisons that were spewed into the uh, air, um, how many people were uh, affected. And I know just from research that I, I have done, one of the women that I saw that we washed her face off was a lovely young Black woman. She died a few years back, and I remember in shock kind of seeing her picture and remembering who she was. When we were walking, we saw a fire, the chaplain uh, attached to the um, fire department. Mm -hmm. He was giving last rites to somebody. Oh. And um, we passed him as he was doing that. And uh, it wasn't until a day or two later that I found out when he had removed his fire hat to perform last rites, he was struck and killed by falling debris from the tower. Um, and just to remember that and seeing that event, it was uh, very difficult. Is just there some... any one thing from that day that you see in your head that haunts you the most? Seeing, uh, I think the two things that I remember most was as haunting as the impacts were, um, later seeing um, people jumping out the windows to not burn to death. You saw that. Seeing, um, seeing bodies. Ugh. I didn't see the people falling. I, I saw bodies and clothing in the East River. Okay. That was, that had, the East River is not that close to the Twin Towers. So you're talking about debris that had literally been blown into the river and seeing the that debris floating underneath the 59th street bridge. That's, that's something I will never forget. Uh, seeing the, the explosion, the gouts of flame coming out of that building from the uh, second impact and seeing all the paper from the financial center, just, just glittering down in the sunlight on this beautiful day. And it was, it was pretty terrible. What did the air um, smell like? Was there a different smell in the air? Yes. Um, New York does not have a pleasant smell. <laughs> no. um, I, I, will, I will tell you what I tell, have told other people uh, in a cleaned up version is that New York generally smells like 
bus fumes and dog poop. Now the city had this terrible acrid burning. It just smelled like the entire city was burning. And of course, there was nowhere in the city that you could be that you could not see flames and smoke. The the smoke did not stop. Most people didn't realize that the, the flames were actually not completely extinguished at ground zero for almost six months. You're kidding. No, it took them uh, almost long. I actually have a number of facts. 2,753 people were killed at the World Trade Center site in Lower Manhattan. And with all due respect to all the other locations that were attacked that day, I'm keeping my focus on this because that's what I personally experienced. Of those who perished in the initial attack and subsequent collapses of towers, 343 were New York City firefighters. 23 were New York City police officers and 37 were officers from the Port Authority. On September 11th, Officer John Perry was at police headquarters filing his retirement papers when he was notified about the first plane striking the tower. He rushed to the scene to assist with rescue operations and was killed when one of the towers collapsed. He was the only off-duty police officer killed on 9-11. It was estimated that had the attacks taken place even an hour later, as many as an additional 31,000 deaths would have occurred because an additional 8,000 people would have been trapped above the impact site and another 23,000 people would have died in stairwells while trying to evacuate the World Trade Center. The number of children who lost a parent that day was 3,051. 17 babies, however, were subsequently born to women whose husbands had died during the attack. Nearly 10,000 fighter fighters from all over the country ultimately responded. It still took until December, I'm sorry, it was December 20th. It was over 100 days to extinguish all the fires that were ignited by the terror attacks in New York City. On May 30th, 2002, the cleanup at Ground Zero officially ended. It would take 3.1 million hours of labor to clean up 1.8 million tons of wreckage. 20 people were actually rescued alive from the rubble in the World Trade Center site. The last was rescued far beneath the rubble 27 hours after the towers, North Towers collapsed. And only 291 dead bodies were recovered from ground zero. The New York City Department of Citywide Administrative Services, the Division of uh, Design and construction assisted by FEMA, the Army Corps of Engineers, OSHA, and, uh, Office of Emergency Management oversaw all recovery efforts. And we actually had to return 100,000 body bags that had been procured to deal with the anticipated death toll. Uh, search and rescue dogs, there were over 400 dogs. They found so few living people that it was causing them great stress because they believed they had failed in their mission. Handlers and rescue workers actually had to regularly hide in the rubble in order to give the dogs, the rescue dogs, a successful find and to keep their spirits up. Workers sifted through more than 1 million tons of debris looking for human remains and personal effect. They ultimately found 65,000 individual remains and other items, including 437 watches and 144 wedding rings. Those aboard the four hijacked flights, which was American 11, 
United 175, American 77, and United 93 were all heroes. They calmly called family and friends from their cell phone. There was no shouting, no evidence of hysteria on any of the calls. They alerted authorities to the hijacking, which enabled them to understand why they could not track the planes after their navigation systems were switched off. One of the unsung heroes in 9-11 was a guide dog named Rosalie, a yellow Labrador, who led her blind owner, Michael Hickson, down 78 stories of the North Tower and home to a friend. The total cost of the cleanup at Ground Zero was approximately $5 billion. Estimated cost of the World Trade Site damage, including damage to surrounding buildings, infrastructure, and subway facilities was $60 billion. Estimated economic loss during the first four weeks after the World Trade Center collapse in New York City was over $123 billion. On December 13th, 2001, the United States government released the tape which Osama bin Laden took responsibility for the September 11 tax. On May 2nd, 2011, Osama bin Laden was finally brought to justice. May 10th, 2014, the unidentified remains of those killed in the attacks were returned to the World Trade Center site where they are still kept in a repository under the jurisdiction of the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner of the City of New York until further identifications can be made. Now, I updated this in 2019. According to a statement released on July 11, 2019 by the Chief Medical Examiner's Office, two additional victims of the World Trade Center had been positively identified due to more sophisticated DNA testing becoming available. The testing was performed on remains recovered in 2013. However, as of that date, only 1,643, which is less than 60% of the 2,753 victims' remains had been positively identified. I'm really actually amazed that it's that high with such devastation. When you're talking about bone fragments, I mean, uh, I've heard stories where there were um, buildings that were blocks and blocks away and they uh, were removing a large uh, air conditioning unit from the top of a building. And sure enough, when they moved it, they found additional remains wedged between um, these two units and they were sent to the medical examiner's office again for identification. Those remains, uh, if you visit the the museum and uh, that is at the, the World Trade Center site are still there and they have a mosaic of blue tiles one for each person that died that day. The interesting thing though is, is that out of all 2,753 tiles, every one of them is a fractionally different shade of blue to distinguish each one for each individual. I thought that was wow. a very interesting uh, way to pay homage to all those individuals. I feel like our Heavenly Father did intervene in this, and I don't know if that's an appropriate topic for this. That John, I was going to ask you, what oh. miracles do you see that happened that day out of this horrible, nightmarish, evil day? Yeah. Do you well, find you, any miracles? Some might ask, where was God on September 11th? Well, I will tell you, he was everywhere. During my extended time in the mayor's bunker, I was part of a tremendous team tasked with coordinating the city's recovery efforts. As such, I was privy to an extensive number of stories told by people who did not die on 9-11.
While the circumstances of each story were unique, they all had a similar theme. All of them experienced obstacles that delayed them long enough to prevent their arrival prior to the disaster. People told me about unexpected traffic delays, subway delays, commuter train delays, a path train packed with commuters was stopped at a signal due to a sick passenger just short of the World Trade Center. It returned to Jersey City so he could receive medical attention and all those people were saved. One man survived 9-11 because his son, he took his son to kindergarten that day. Another was late because it was his turn to buy the donuts that morning. Many told me they were late because their alarm clocks had inexplicably failed to go off. One woman had a child who dawdled and didn't get ready as soon as he should have. The one that struck me most, though, was a man who told me he'd put on a new pair of shoes that morning. What could that possibly have to do with him surviving? Well, he went to work his usual way, but before he got there, he developed a blister on his foot. So he stopped at a drugstore in Penn Station to buy a Band-Aid, and that is why he is alive today. The company that owned the World Trade Center had scheduled a meeting on 9-11 on the 88th floor of the North Tower to discuss what to do in the event of a terrorist attack. Wow. Who scheduled the night before because one participant could not attend. When all transportation out of the city was shut down, the Coast Guard issued an all-vessel alert requesting assistance from all commercial and civilian mariners in the area. The Coast Guard then coordinated with boat owners who managed to transport over 500,000 people away from Manhattan Island to Brooklyn and New Jersey in an act of courage that became known as the 9-11 boat lift. Have you seen that documentary, John? It's absolutely amazing. Yes. It's incredible. You can't help but tear up with that. <sighs> Interestingly, the only American not on Earth during 9-11 was astronaut Frank L. Cuthbertson, who recorded the event from the International Space Station. He later learned that the pilot of the plane that struck the Pentagon was Charles Burlingham, a classmate of his from the United States Naval Academy. Ben Sliney, the chief of air traffic control operations at the FAA's command center in Herndon, Virginia, gave the unprecedented order to ground more than 4,000 planes across the nation and redirect any in the sky to the nearest airport. It was his first day on the job. <sighs> the only plane allowed to fly on 9-11 after the attacks was a plane from San Diego to Miami that was delivering anti-venom to a man that had been bitten by a highly poisonous snake. Even that was accompanied by two fighter jets. Crazy. No one can tell me that our Heavenly Father was not with each of us that terrible day. One final update, as I mentioned earlier, my former Deputy Director Bob Devlin and I left our office and found his daughter Kate so that he could deliver her safely home. And on that morning back in 2019, when I had updated this, Bob wrote me to say that Kate and her husband were expecting their fourth child that year and that his son Bryant has currently has a daughter and a son. This will be the fifth time that Bob has become a grandfather and Lily and I also anticipated uh, becoming grandparents at the end of 2019. And that little girl is sleeping right next door to me now when she's 20 months old. I mean, there's a timeline which pretty much everybody knows about. Uh, I just felt like 
I, I had to say as terrible as that day was, it could have been and would have been much, much worse had our Heavenly Father not intervened and saved all those people that that could be saved. It was, uh, again, I, it's why I, I consider myself one of the luckiest people on, on earth just to still be standing here at this point and, and to have avoided all the pitfalls that most certainly could have killed anybody in a completely random fashion. There are many times when people would, instead of going to the office, I would divert and I would go to uh, the World Trade Center because there were food trucks there. And just so, so happened that uh, this day I went, I was headed for the office and um, say it took me a couple of days to kind of recover from the shock of everything that went on. But after, I think it was on the second day after I had gotten home, uh, I received a call and the city needed me to tens of thousands of other people to uh, come and help coordinate the relief efforts. And that's what we did. We reported to the a military vessel, the, um, the medical ship Hope, and uh, it was docked at Pier 19. Uh, Pier, no, uh, I forget what pier it was, but it was it was docked there, and they set up a command post, and that's where we first reported. And security was indescribable. My wife was driving me there with her brother, so that she wouldn't have to travel home alone. And they went to drop me off, and they kept going through ring after ring of security, and. They were using mirrors to look under cars to make sure there were no bombs planted. And they had bomb sniffing dogs checking every uh, person. And they had uh, people checking uh, triplicate forms of identification to let us pass. Now, something else that was interesting. One of the first things they had to do was give identification to everybody. And they, they gave you um, identification, I think, from like A to Z. You know, And if you had A, you could get near the place, but not actually go in. And Z, you could basically go anywhere at any time. Um, and because I was the guy who paid the bills, I had Z. They made sure I could go anywhere I needed to to make sure that everything that the city uh, employees needed and the uniform services needed to get the job done was being procured and paid for. Um, even that, you know, you'd think, well, what's so interesting? You know, what, what kind of role would the accountants play? I had um, somebody from Canada call me. They had been put bounced around because nobody knew what to do with them. This gentleman uh, heard we needed fuel to run the generators that were lighting the, the spotlighting the ground zero at night so that the work cont could continue, that the rescue efforts could continue uninterrupted. And he told me that he had mortgaged his home no. and he had purchased a 50,000 gallon trailer of fuel and he was going to deliver it with his father uh, the following day. Was there any way I could help make sure I got him paid within 30 days? And I said, well, we'll do our best, but things are kind of crazy here. He said, no, you don't understand. If I don't pay them back in 30 days, I lose my home. He said, I understand. I gave him my personal guarantee that he would get paid within 30 days. And he absolutely did. And he was just one of the people that volunteered from all over the world, really, that just did extraordinary things to uh, help us on uh, our day of greatest need. And uh, 
How apprehensive were you going back into the city that day? Well, I tell you, I, I was anxious to help, but I have to tell you, those those multiple rings of security and the most New Yorkers had not seen heavily armed troops, you know, surrounding it was ring after ring and every ring of security got tighter and more intense and they were no well i i guess it did but it it sure made me nervous because um what are they expecting right uh you know and and that was really the worst part of the entire story was how apprehensive people were because nobody knew is it coming today is it coming tomorrow how far reaching nobody really realized how lucky these guys got and you know the fact it was just a, a series of, of events that all conspired to create the disaster that it, it i'm happy to say that on a recent visit to new york to uh, celebrate uh, my wife's uh, niece her wedding uh, that uh, new york is in good shape and and doing fine thank you and as we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of this I look forward and take comfort in the ceremonies and the various uh, things that the city does to pay homage to the people who uh, had to endure and experience that day. Have you been back to Ground Zero? I have not. My wife actually has been, and uh, it was only in the last year or two that I told her, I said, if we do take a vacation back to New York, that I would like to go see the Ground Zero Museum. I finally feel like comfortable enough that I could go back there and not be so upset that I would not be uh, uncomfortable going there. Did so, you know anybody that was injured or killed that day? Lillian's uh, my wife's brother. Um, he had a very, very close friend uh, who worked in the Twin Towers and was was killed uh, in that. And uh, Yeah. How are you doing today, John, with processing everything with it coming to the 20th anniversary. I don't even um, want to say anniversary. I hate that word because anniversary to me. Yeah. Oh. Happy connotation, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, but even terrible events have anniversaries and whether it was uh, World War II, we have the armistice. We have 9-11 and uh, I think, I think the term anniversary is good because I think it lets me know that people are still remembering and still understanding the far reaching consequences that uh, the events of that day have had on so many people. It was very interesting for me to actually talk to other people around the country when we were telling our story that what were you doing, you know, while these events were untold and some people were in school. Um, We've spoken to a group of children, uh, most of whom were not old enough to remember the events of 9-11. And we tried to give them a sense of the expanse, the um, far-reaching nature of the these events and uh, both on a large and on a very personal scale, which is why I, I tried to take down, you know, the the different stories that people were telling me uh, about how this affected them and what they did. You know, all of a sudden people that had, you know, never considered donating blood before, you know, are now regularly donating. So it changed our whole world, though, didn't it? When you think about it, it did it changed our whole world from going to the airport to sending troops over to the Middle East. And this changed so much. When my kids talk to me about it, they're like, I can't believe you were alive when that happened, mom. It's a big deal. Yeah. Why do you think it's yeah. important that we remember 
I think there's many reasons why some of them are, are positive. I think, you know, the fact that so many people responded in a positive manner that day and were so willing to help and stop their, put their daily lives on hold to help in large and small ways. And um, I think it was great. I think it was great that our uniform services got back some of the respect that maybe they had lost in previous years and uh, suddenly people realized how much we count on them for that. So I think that's a very important. Uh, we need to remember that thing. today. Yeah, we, we definitely need to remember that. I also think we need to remember that um, as, as much as people don't like deploying troops and, and don't maybe they don't see the need uh, for it, that uh, people remember that the price of security sometimes is, is vigilance and uh, that um, we enjoy a lot of freedoms in this country that, you know, our founding fathers <laughs> started this, this experiment, uh, this this democracy that that we enjoy, it was an experiment. I mean, most people don't realize what a radical departure it was from the rest of the world, never been tried before, and that we enjoying the fruits of that experiment to this day. Something that I try to keep in mind uh, as I go through my the daily toils and and troubles that uh, and tribulations that we all go through on a daily basis. I have to remember how blessed and how lucky we are. What does America mean to you? Certainly freedom is the, is the number one thing. I feel like we are beyond blessed with that. And as much as people will may sometimes take advantage of it or abuse it, the reality is, is that we are in a country that freedom and the desire to be uh, a good citizen. I decided to go back to work, um, even though I had been retired from the city for a few years. So in any event, um, I would say that uh, most certainly the desire to be a good citizen, uh, a good father, a good husband, a good grandfather. Um, you know, we moved to Utah because we couldn't imagine being so far away from our son. And oh, what if he gets married? What if he starts a family? And that's exactly what happened. We're just very blessed that... Um, we have another Utah family now. We have friend, family and friends in New York, but we also now have a lot of people that we love very much, very dearly, uh, including my dear granddaughter who just woke up. And uh, the fact that she can have sleepovers and that I'm still alive uh, because um, I got the medical treatment that I uh, needed and uh, that we had the freedoms and, and such to, to be able to, uh, to prosper, where a lot of people do not have that. They do not enjoy those freedoms. They do not enjoy the opportunities that we enjoy. So that's what America means to me. Thank you for sharing with us today. I know it's a difficult story, but it's an important one. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. And a special thank you to John Pontecoloni for spending an hour with me to retell the events of that day from his first-hand perspective. And although there were many horrific, evil things that happened on that day, I am grateful John was able to share with us some of the miracles that also occurred. I appreciate every one of you listening to these podcast episodes. Please do me a favor, subscribe, review, and rate these episodes. It really helps this podcast. And be sure to share with family and friends. 
Next week, my guest is retired Navy SEAL Jason Redman, and he is as cool as you think a Navy SEAL might be. Until next week, see you then.